Man, what a week, huh? <laughs> I mean, over the past couple of weeks, it's I've just felt a lot less tension for some reason. Can't put my finger on it. <laughs> Welcome everyone to Story Trek. I'm your co-host, Michael Stratigakis. I'm Marshall Hopkins. And we are taking you through journeys of the narrative within Star Trek, the framing of it, the archetypes of it. And sometimes we're going to do something a little different, like today, where we talk about our own personal connections to Star Trek and sort of our gateway into it, if you will, like it's a drug or something. Really, I think more than anything else, it's just to give you guys an understanding of sort of the journey that we've been on in our own lives and how Star Trek has affected us. Now, if you haven't had a chance already, please follow us on podcasting. You know, if you're looking on Apple Podcasts, hit the subscribe button, write us a review. Uh, if you want to follow to see when we're releasing episodes, story underscore Trek is our handle on Twitter. Uh, without further ado, let's get right into it then. So Marshall, I know we talk about Star Trek all the time, obviously, not even right. just in this podcast, but just in the world, the two of us. Right. And what I don't know much about is your entry into the world of Star Trek. How did that come about? Well, it's sort of interesting just because as I was thinking about this, this episode, um, I was trying to figure out what was my kind of starting point. And for me, there was no particular eureka moment because I kind of grew up with Trek by osmosis. My father was a Trekker. He was a former Marine, served in Vietnam. So we never really had like a full discussion on what it was in Trek that he saw, that he loved or things like that. It was just always around. You would basically collect VHS tapes for any movie that you wanted to see again. We would have Saturdays where we would just sit up and watch all of the movies. So trying to think about my first end point with Star Trek, I, you know, it's difficult for me to remember one specific story that drew me in. Of course, this is Story Trek, so we want to focus on some of the stories that that spoke to us or drew us in. And I will get to that in a second. But some of my earliest memories are, you know, the very first time I saw a chair with wheels on it, I immediately hop in it and I'm starting to play act the last act of Wrath of Khan. And I'd seen it so many times, I can do both Kirk's part and, and Khan's part as well. Which one do you have down, Pat? Um... Oh, goodness. You know, I, my memory is no long, nowhere near as strong now. <laughs> I've killed too many brain cells since then, so I couldn't tell you now. I, nowadays, it's probably more the Ricardo Montalban part, just because, I mean, that dialogue and that delivery is just so, just, just mwah, chef's kiss. But when I was younger, it was definitely the Kirk part. I was definitely, you know, all about the heroes. And this is kind of the brilliant thing in Star Trek. You have the two-fisted heroes, but you have characters like Spock, the scientists, the thinkers, who are kind of your real MVPs of the story. So even at an early age, I kind of clued in on the fact that the Trek sort of combines this love of taking action for the greater good with a love of intelligence and, and not just taking action, but doing so intelligently. So when I was younger, my father used to take me to, when I was old enough, take me to all of the Star Trek movies when they came out. I think the first one that I remember seeing in theaters was The Voyage Home, um, famously known by most of our, probably most of our listeners as the one with the whales. Um, so again, I'm still too young to fully grasp the stories. I think the very first story I kind of grasped, and it's still one of my favorites to this day, is Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. 
Um, so as you can tell at this point, the television shows are sort of on the periphery, like they're around me, but they're not really permeating. It's the movies, I think, that were kind of more of the turning point for me when I was younger. And of course, this is all, most of it's prior to the premiere of The Next Generation. And when the next generation came out, you might think, oh, well, that, you know, that was when he really kind of got, no, if you were familiar with the original series, the next generation, those first three seasons were not the easiest transition for you as a fan to like watch these new characters that didn't seem to have as many connections to the original series and the things that you saw in the movies. So the next generation wasn't until later. I think that the real point that was a turning point for me in terms of comprehending Star Trek was Deep Space Nine. It just sort of dovetailed together that I was right at the right age for understanding some of these stories. And as the stories on the show got more complex, so I got older and my ability to understand them better. So Deep Space Nine kind of was a touchstone throughout my teenage years for two different reasons. Not only, as we mentioned before, I was kind of growing in my understanding of storytelling, of the world, of politics, and Deep Space Nine introduces you to a lot more complex view, in some cases of the exact same issues you saw in The Next Generation. But in addition to that, as I mentioned before, my, uh, my Rosetta Stone in the Star Trek is my father. So what do you have in Deep Space Nine? You have a story about uh, a Black guy uh, who is a, a military commander, amongst other things, uh, who is also a single dad to a Black son. You didn't really see that on television. I think you and I were talking, I think we were talking about this online, uh, offline. I can't recall if, uh, what article uh, you cited. I think it was Entertainment Weekly, I think. That's what I recall. For some reason, it was Entertainment. I, that's what I read back in the day. So I'm figuring that was it. And it was, it, I, I, if I recall, you mentioned that somebody noticed that there were no black fathers in non-comedic roles on television at that time. You know, you have sitcoms, you have Uncle Phil and the Fresh Prince and, you know, things like that. And you have the dad from Family Matters, but you didn't really see any black fathers in dramatic or serious roles. And of course, the trope of sitcoms is that the father is always kind of this foil to a more popular character or henpecked or confused or things like that. So always played for comedy's sake. I was going to say, it's interesting that you brought up that your your gateway into Star Trek actually was the movies more than the series. Uh, and that's something actually I had parallels with my own experience. For me, I, I didn't really have a, a mother and father that were like indoctrinating me into it. it for me, it was like self-indoctrination. <laughs> my parents were fans of Star Trek. Don't get me wrong. They're still fans. They... To this day, they're watching episodes. They're still finishing up all the series. They haven't watched them all. And for me, it was just that I was drawn to it in sort of a way of the awe of the language of the show and the characterizations of the show. It was something, it doesn't make much sense for a little four or five-year-old. I mean, I probably might have been as young as three when I was already a Trek fan. I know that by the time I was in kindergarten, I had a Star Trek II Wrath of Khan sweater. <laughs> it was like an iron-on or something like that of Captain Kirk on it. Uh, I also had like an iron-on of the Enterprise from the original series probably around then too. Of course, 80s iron-ons, it's the way it was. I'm sure they were adorable. Oh, they were very adorable. <laughs> <laughs> I even have a, a photo of myself on a mock bridge at a video store, believe it. Wow, this will really sound crazy retro. I have a video store mock-up bridge. I think the place was called Video Hut in Houston. Wow. 
the play, they set up a mock uh, command console, nav console, captain's chair of the TOS bridge, and they had in town George Takei in his Star Trek Monster Maroon uniform, posing for pictures and signing autographs with fans. Whoa. So I was there and my parents took me. I bought a copy of Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock while I was there. George signed my copy. He signed a couple other things I gave him, talked with him for a minute, and I took a picture. And somewhere, I can't find it. One day, I'll when I find it, I'll share it. I have a photo of myself sitting in this mock captain's chair of the Enterprise with, with Sulu at the helm. Wow. That is some major cred, my friend. That is cool. So, uh, you know, I was really into it. And I think my parents, you know, they were like, there are worse things our child could be into. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, and for me, it was um, the first one I saw in theaters was Search for Spock. And I had seen already before that, I'd already seen Wrath of Khan and the motion picture countless times on VHS. I, I finally saw those two actually in theaters about the time I was about eight. And that's the same time I started doing costume contests. That's another story. Long story short, yes, the gateway for me and Trek was the movies just like you. But I'm curious, your father, uh, you said he was he was the one you connected Star Trek to. Was he like a fan of it going back into like the original airings or the, where did he where did he get connected to the show? You know, um, that's a uh, there are some questions that, you know, I wish I could go back in time and take a moment to ask him just because um, I'm sure that I, I know from his age that Star Trek would have come out uh, premiered right around the time he would have been in his late teens. I never officially or fully got the the answer or the information as to how he actually started with it. You know, considering connections, I'm sure we have some similarities and it was probably like, oh, look at this, you know, cool show. But in addition to that, it wasn't just that it was cool. You had um, a military aspect and my father enlisted. He wasn't drafted into the, into the service. So you have that aspect of it. You have these themes of service and duty that go along with it. And then uh, obviously the multiculturalism of it in the 1960s was, you know, it, it, I, I think it's drastically overstated today, just how earth shaking it was to have someone who is African American working alongside someone who is white, someone who is Asian, someone who is Russian, someone who is various other walks of life. And that was something that you simply did not see on TV at that time. If I had to take anything away, if I had to guess, then I'd probably say it's those specific themes where I would guess that he probably saw a world where, oh, wow, I can be equal to anybody and, you know, work towards the greater good for other people. So if I had to guess what drew him into it, I think it's that. And I think it was just how damn smart it was for its time. They were discussing scientific concepts that you could easily see working and existing, but nobody had ever conceived of them. I vaguely remember an interview that DeForest Kelly, who played Dr. McCoy in the original series once, and he describes it. It's one of the early first season episodes, and there's this prop on set that's in his the, the set for a sick bay. And he points it and he says, what is that? And they say, it's a heart monitor. And this is years later, DeForest Kelly is remembering that this show had the heart monitor before they were common in hospitals. So yeah, so I, I think that just seeing that speculative technology combined with the ideology, combined with the fact that you can visibly see people working together. And then on top of that, you have these allegorical stories about how we can get there through problem solving, resolving conflicts and things like that, using various alien races as allegories. 
And then I think the final key point for him probably would have been the historical aspect of it or the not historical, but geopolitical. Mm -hmm. I think Star Trek always had um, a little bit of a, a geopolitical faint to it. I've always felt, and you can disagree, and I welcome any disagreement. I've always felt that at the very least in the original series, the allegories were the Federation was the United States, the Vulcans were the Japanese, the Romulans were the Chinese, and the Klingons were the Russians. Mm -hmm. And so all of these stories that you see play out in the original series are allegorical theorizing about how do we resolve conflicts with this group of people, with this group of people? How do we build closer relationships or just simply better understand a culture that's different from ours? So I think that those are some of the hallmarks of Star Trek. Like it truly was ahead of its time for when it came out in the 1960s. And I think that the next generation continued that. But um, my father... You know, it took it took some warming up time before he got into the next generation. He, I think he was one of those fans who kind of had this moment when they, they found out that they were redoing or doing sort of a sequel. He said, how can you do Star Trek without William Shatner? Now, obviously, <laughs> we know now that it is eminently possible to do many things with Star Trek without William Shatner. But you have to remember at that time, like there was no other Trek outside of Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Uhura, Chekhov, Scotty, Bones, that entire cast. So it was difficult to conceive how in the world do you catch lightning in a bottle twice? And we've come to discover that it wasn't necessarily lightning in a bottle. It is something that speaks to deeper to the human condition. And uh, it's obviously what we all key in on Star Trek. I think for myself, I, like I said, the, the, the connections and the allegorical type, the visibility type of things, those were things that came to me probably after I was about nine, 10, I would say. Because before that, I think I was still catching up with Star Trek. <laughs> I, I was the child that I would watch the motion picture and pause the movie and turn to an adult and ask them, what does that word mean? I, you know, I constantly, if they didn't have an adult, I would start using the dictionary and I'd find the word. And I would constantly use Star Trek, if anything else, to enhance my own vocabulary and in order to understand the show, because I was just so fascinated by these characters and Spock and his logical reasoning and McCoy and his emotional grounding of his character with Kirk sort of refereeing the two, if you will, and being that you know, headstrong, charismatic leader that he is. So for me, the representational aspect of Star Trek was a little bit later. And I think that's probably around the time of a little bit into the run of Next Generation, maybe the second season or so. And that's where I started to really start to gravitate to understand that the show speaks to a bigger thing than just, it's a show in space with these cool effects and these places that they go to and things. I didn't understand that allegorical aspect of it until then. And in fact, the original series, I would watch them a hundred times. And I think that, again, a lot of the socio-political commentary was, as a child, over my head. I was trying just to understand the characters and keep up with the stories, which I found immensely fascinating and inventive. And that's what kept me in the, into it until the point that I became old enough to understand and appreciate more of what I got myself into as a fan, which is about the same time for me that I took it upon myself to actually write a fan letter to the showrunner for The Next Generation, Michael Piller. I wrote Michael, probably I was about 12 years old, 12 years old. And this is about a season, this is probably, at the time I wrote him, probably season five was just about to start or was starting. And 
I specifically wrote to Pillar because I was so impressed, among other things, with the best of both worlds. Mm. That was the episode that it that things started to click, this whole idea of assimilation and what it means with society. There was something about it. It was such a visceral thing. And of course, we've talked about that episode quite a bit on the show. But for me, the writing on it and the execution of it was just at such a high level that I actually started looking at who is the writer of this? Who wrote this? And that's when I started paying attention to those types of things behind the scenes. And consequently, I wrote Michael Pillar and he wrote me back as nice and gracious as he was, uh, actually invited me to the set of The Next Generation. Unfortunately, I, as a child growing up in Houston, Texas in the 1990s, uh, did not have the wherewithal or understanding on when can I go visit the set? <laughs> or, And there was no phone number given. So I was like, do I write back to get that? How do I get it? <laughs> like, I was just kind of lost at that point, And I wasn't really sure what to do next. Now I understand they pretty much shoot the show almost year round with a little small hiatus. And if I'd have gone during one of my summer vacations in, high, in junior high, I probably could have gone to the set. And now thinking back about it, I want to kick myself about that. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh my gosh, how many people get a chance to actually wander around those sets, especially if such an iconic show. Right. It was many years later that I actually did meet Michael Pillar, and I'm very thankful to have gotten to briefly get to know him in the time that I did before he passed away. And it was really just the excitement of understanding that this show was not just a kid's show, that it was meant to be something higher level. And when I would look at Star Wars and see... You know, obviously the good, the evil, the archetypes, the samurai references. I, but I think the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars, not to get into an argument about it, is Star Wars appeals to you really early as a young child and you get it. You can follow it as a child. You're not stopping like you do with Star Trek to kind of follow certain things. Anything that needs any explanation to a child is spelled out to a child. And as you get older, there comes a certain point where what Star Wars means and what it stands for, it plateaus. There's a certain level that it goes to. Yes, it hits all the Joseph Conrad hero, you know, was the hero of a thousand faces or something like right. that is the book. It hits all those, and that's not Joseph Conrad. That's the guy who wrote Heart, Heart of Darkness. Joseph Campbell. Campbell, thank you. Joseph I, Campbell. Yeah, the C's threw me off too. Joseph Campbell, you get it. Once you read that, you're probably a freshman in high school or something like that when you're probably first exposed to that. At that point, that is to the extent, in my experience, of where Star Wars kind of tops off. But with Star Trek to this day, because the show is ever evolving, in many ways reinvents itself with every show. Mm. It became something where it's like, well, I already got that from the last show. What am I going to gain? What am I going to glean from this show? What is it going to teach me about humanity in this show? What's it going to tell me about you know, as I grow older, what does it tell me about the contemporary time in which the show is made? Star Wars is made a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Star Trek is made, you know, hundreds, if not a thousand years into the future. But the point of Star Trek is all of what it's about and when it's made is about the time in which it was made. Star mm. Wars is made to try to be anachronistic of any time. And I think that's where it, what the difference is, is that there's that speaking to that current events level of the show, speaking to the current human condition through the generation of the show that you're watching, whether it's Discovery, TNG, Voyager, or even TOS. It's all an evolution of that, and it's based upon the society in which the show is made. 
So I was just going to key in on a couple of different things you mentioned there. And we actually had some similar experiences. I was also that kid who would see something on TV. There's a word he didn't understand. He would ask his parents, what does that word mean? Um, Only my family was uh, the type that would say, go look it up in the dictionary. You tell me. Um, so, um, so that, that was one experience. And then another experience. Um, so I did kind of get a little bit of the geopolitical stuff, uh, earlier on when I was, I was one of those weird kids that, um, I would watch the nightly news, especially if I was off, it's a vacation or it's, um, you know, a, a holiday or something like that. Why watch the news at that young age? Cause that's what the adults are watching. I specifically remember Christmas day, 1989, watching the news of Nikolai Ceausescu, the Soviet strongman of um, Romania, of, thank you, Romania, uh, being overthrown. So I was that weird kid. So when I say that I watched the undiscovered country, Star Trek VI, when I was younger, and I got the geopolitical things that were moving, I immediately understood that, oh, this is about the fall of the Cold War, all that sort of stuff. So that did kind of, it, it, it sunk in with me intellectually, on a kind of a basal level, but it wasn't something that I understood all the complexities of uh, and just how brilliant it was that they were exploring some of these topics. One other thing um, that I wanted to key in on, I think that you'd mentioned how season four or the end of season four into season five of The Next Generation was kind of where the storytelling and who wrote this kind of began to sink in. And I wanted to key on how I feel like that that maybe is kind of a common trait of ours, how we grew up with Star Trek to a certain extent. But when I say that, I mean, Star Trek became vastly more complex, more of an open world as we kind of were opening up into a world, so to speak. So that best of both worlds episodes, we've covered that ground many times. But just from a different angle looking at it, if you're at that age of your teenage years, the story of somebody good being turned into a mindless automaton for a machine, it just keys into all your teenage angst, even though this story that you're watching is about a man in his 40s. So I feel like Star Trek did something brilliant in that they found ways to tell stories that you could emotionally key in on, regardless of your walk of life. You know, it's funny, you you brought up how Deep Space Nine was a real turning point for you. And I must admit that when TOS was on and TNG came was starting to come out or was going to come out, I was a little skeptical, but of course I watched TNG and after a couple of seasons, I was a fan, or if not a fan pretty quickly, you know, as a seven or eight year old, your standards are, I guess, for some things are certainly pretty low, but When it came time that they announced Deep Space Nine, I found myself reverting into that fan trope of, you can't remake Star Trek again. I was one of those fans who, when Deep Space Nine came around, I was like, you can't reinvent Star Trek. This is is a show that you can't redo. And wait a minute, they're doing it on a space station? Hold on. Hold on. A space station with a bar and the descriptive I read early on was a brothel? Oh, wow. That was what was in the newspaper, I think, at the Houston Post. It described the new show that would have a brothel. And I was thinking to myself, what kind of Star Trek show is this? <laughs> and I was immediately thinking to myself, oh, no, it's Cheers in Space. Mm. And I brought this up to my English teacher in seventh grade, who was a Star Trek fan and very encouraging of me. I shout out to Miss Harris. I brought up my concerns in my, of the new show to her. She, having been a fan since the 60s. She said to me, 
And I'll never forget that she says, any Trek is good Trek. Wow. And I, and I was like, ah, no, 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 it can't be. And honestly, when Deep Space Nine did its first run, I don't remember for what, there were a couple of varying reasons, but I mostly tuned out of the show. I stayed away from it because I was just like, and I would tune in and every time I would tune in for just a moment, I would see a Ferengi and I thought to myself, a Ferengi from TNG and I'm like, uh. You know, or I'd see some scene with <laughs> with um, with Quark's brother, Rom. Rom. I'd see a scene with Rom, and I was like, "Oh my god!" I just think to myself, "This is this is this is what it's come to." Okay, no, I, I and it just always happened to be that, or it'd be some scene with like Major Kira discussing some political thing when religion with the Bajorans. So I just kind of had it with the show, just in those little sound snippets of the time. It was just the wrong moment for a teenager to see the show in bits. And I was already so dead set against the show by the time it aired. So for me, I actually stepped away from Star Trek for a while. And in fact, I think I remember watching the pilot to Voyager being, you know, unimpressed with it because I felt like it was too much. The the, the pilot felt too much like a rehash of Encounter at Farpoint for me mm. that I was like, wait, we're just going to remake the next generation. All right, I'm done. So I, I stayed away out of sort of the cynical nature of being a teenager. And also because I had spent my junior high school years taking a lot of crap, I'll say, for being a Star Trek fan in particular in the era where everybody was either Star Wars or Terminator or just whatever's cool. So I think I kind of needed to take a vacation from being a fan. So I honestly... Didn't watch that much Star Trek when I was in high school. It wasn't until I got to the end of my time in high school. I would still watch the movies. Don't get me wrong. I still watch the TNG movies. But aside from those movies, and the only two that came out at that period for me were Generations and First Contact. It wasn't until the time of Insurrection, and then of course Enterprise started to air, that I started to watch Star Trek again for a little while. So there was a gap in my life where I was strictly TNG reruns, strictly TOS in movies. And I was no, vo there was no DS9, there was no Voyager. And there was honestly, after a couple of blue light shower scenes in Enterprise, I was kind of, <laughs> I kind of wrote that show off too. Until the, basically the, like the last half of the final season of it, uh, the season four. That's, that was, that was where Star Trek was for me up until about 2007, I'd say. Uh, it was a show that was part of my past. It was a show that I was very much a fan of, specifically of TOS and TNG. So that's what it lived lived for. And then at one point, I discovered that somebody had pirated episodes of Deep Space Nine and Voyager onto YouTube by each act break. Because at that time, if you recall, YouTube didn't allow over a certain period, number of minutes. So I would start watching selective episodes of DS9 based on like fan lists of like best episodes. And I really got into Deep Space Nine then. I was like, holy crap, I missed the show. Then of course, after going through sort of the selected run, I went back and did a full run of the show and I was a fan. I mean, a, a fan of Deep Space Nine on its own. It, I, you know, I think back about it now, cheers in space. You know, that's, that's, it was, I was so fixated on this whole thing. Space station is just revolving over around a planet. Oh, they're going to throw a wormhole at it. Oh, okay. <laughs> what, what, what do we got there? What are you going to do with that? I had no idea that they were going to take the creative initiative that they did with that show. And I, I, I didn't really see that at the time. And I was, like I said, very cynical. 
And it took me some time to go back to it and see the evolution of those shows and see what the unique aspects of the shows were as an older person. I kind of had similar experiences. So my period of cynicism, and to be fair, the first three seasons of Deep Space Nine, I was not the most dedicated viewer. And this is just like a little uh, piece of tidbit information for those who are interested in beginning your own runs of watching Star Trek series. The first three seasons of most of the Star Trek series, um, with the possible exception of the original series, because there were only three seasons, they're going to be rough. Um, And it's not because it's bad quality. It's, as you mentioned, each Star Trek show seems to reinvent what Star Trek is. And so it takes a while for it to find its legs, not just what does this show want to be, but what does the show want to be within the larger universe that Gene created? All that said, um, my moment of cynicism, my teenage cynicism, was when Voyager premiered. Premiered on the UPN network, and after a certain point, I'm like, this this show is on the same channel as Homeboys from Outer Space. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Uh, On that basis, and for a lot of different reasons, I was at that age where I was kind of phasing away from science fiction things and, well, not necessarily science fiction things, just towards different avenues. Like I kind of rewatched or rediscovered Star Wars at this time. This was around when they were re-releasing those movies after they had been re-edited and things like that. So I was off kind of exploring a few other things. Enterprise was on my periphery and I didn't really pick that up uh, again, likewise until the fourth season. And then that fourth season was just, you know, it was pretty good. It's what we should have gotten at first. So I kind of had a similar experience where I just kind of wrote off the franchise for a while, re-explored different things. And then I came back and watched Voyager. And with Voyager, again, those first few seasons, I'm like, okay, you're still trying to find yourself. But by this point, I'm a much more experienced viewer. So I'm prepared to know, I'm prepared for the fact that not every episode is going to be golden. You're probably not going to see any instant classics the first couple of seasons, but stick with it and you'll get some, some great moments. And in Voyager, you do. You want an instant classic? Look at Year of Hell. You know, that's obviously uncanon, one of the best Star Trek episodes or two-part episodes, one of the best two hours of Star Trek that you can watch. And an excellent way to injure 2020 if you timed it right. That is correct. I saw that. Uh, someone was going to try, or I saw the meme that someone would try to time Year of Hell correctly to where it ended and the, the whole terrible year ended exactly when 2020 ended. And, you know, here's hoping that 2020 was the end of the Year of Hell and we're not just seeing the second hour of that, hopefully. Here to that. There's been quite a bit of overlap in our exposure to Star Trek. And I, I guess I shouldn't be too surprised. We're both from Houston. We both grew up watching the show. So, <laughs> Right. We're but, definitely going to have a lot of touchstones in there. I, I, I will say this, though. I think that what we mentioned earlier, the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars. And I know I've made this point offline. And it seems like an interesting point to make here in the, in the podcast. And this is just my personal opinion. I welcome anybody to come and dispute it with me. So my theory, and it's not to say that one is better or smarter or one is, I'm not placing one on a pedestal above the other. I just think that it, they're sort of apples and oranges in this respect. You feel Star Wars. You think about Star Trek. The stakes in a Star Wars movie or TV show, as we have now, 
are always emotional. They're very visceral. If you think about the stakes in the first Star Wars, it's if we do not defeat the evil empire, then tyranny will reign across the galaxy. The stakes in your average thing with Star Trek is if we don't fulfill the terms of this treaty, a war will start. Very different, you know, much more cerebral kind of a, a, a way in there as opposed to down with the empire. You know, there's never a moment in Star Trek where everyone is just like down with all of these type of people and everybody's okay with it. Now, again, that's not to say that one is better than the other. I just think that with Star Wars, you have a much more visceral, emotional response. It's designed to, you know, make you cheer. Star Trek is designed to make you think and consider. So I've always felt like these are two different worlds but they they do have a lot of common threads. But again, that's why we're we're talking about story trek. Mm-hmm. I think that if you wanted to do you know story wars, if you wanted to do that, I don't think you have as much to talk about. And it's not that there's less content. I think that at a certain point, all you're talking about are plot points, and not what did this story mean to the human condition, or was this you know great storytelling or things like that. Well, I've I've heard it argued with friends of mine that are fans of the animated Star Wars shows that each of those episodes is a little nugget of sort of a morality play to a certain degree. I can see that. And I've watched some of those series that uh, I believe one of the Clone Wars and things like that. Uh, I've watched some of those series and I can see that they they do tend to uh, go more towards morality tales. But I would say that those morality tales are still less complex than even and that's not even just because it's an animated series. I think that there were stories in Star Trek, the animated series, that were pretty morally complex, uh, not necessarily plot-wise, but you had to think about it a little bit. There's the episode where Spock travels back in time to save himself and winds up causing the death of his beloved childhood pet. You don't see that in a lot of things. You may see something like that in Clone Wars, but it's always going to be fashioned in this black and white, good versus evil framework. Whereas Star Trek allows you the complexity of we can be right for the wrong reasons and we can be wrong for the right reasons. That's the thing. Star Trek is operates very often within the gray area. I think, and we could talk about this on a, another show sometime about how Star Trek is different in a, in the theatrical experience than it is on television as far as the narratives. But I think that when you look at the shows, which is where most people get the lexicon of of the Star Trek universe uh, as a whole, you're looking at a show that dabbles in the gray with every now and then seeing the black or the white. Definitely. And the more you get into, the more Star Trek grows, the more it develops, the more you see that ability to work within that gray area, the complexity. I think that's a part of the reason why Deep Space Nine was such a sea change for so many viewers. Not only does it break the common tropes of Star Trek, but you have less of this jovial, jaunty, let's travel around and see things. You, you get this sense that, you know, this is a bunch of people who are working in an office like, oh, sh- shit, what's going to happen this week? Is it the Cardassians? Is it the Dominion? Is it the Klingons? Which one? Mm-hmm. Um, but you always get this, this deeper sense of these are murky political waters that they have to deal with on many different levels. So I think that Deep Space Nine expanded the Star Trek universe by doing more work in those gray areas. I think that we learn more about the Star Trek universe and many cultures than we ever could have learned from the next generation, just because the next generation was episodic. It wasn't gonna take the time to, you know, they, if they spent three, four, five episodes with Ferengi, 
you know, it was a situational thing. It was never a continuation of what we've known about the Ferengi, not very often. So with Deep Space Nine, you had the opportunity to just expand our knowledge of this universe. I think a lot of what we know about plot-wise Star Trek comes from DS9. Yeah, that, I mean, it's it's the inspiration for a lot of things that came later in Star Trek. Uh, I know that Discovery was at one point referencing as far as, you know, Brian Fuller and his, and his time being the showrunner of the show for a short while. I also have to say that, you know, it's hard to mention the evolution of Star Trek without mentioning, at least in the more recent and contemporary sense, the J.J. Abrams movies and the impact that those have had. Now, granted, it's brought in a whole new fan base to Star Trek that it, in reinventing the original series characters and now casting, you know, Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto and Zoe Saldana as the faces of Star Trek, it brought it into the forefront and, and for a new generation of fans. And that is their original series really is those, those three movies. That's their Kirk, Spock and Uhura. Very different. And that's, an, again, another conversation and that's been beaten to death. I'm sure with a lot of fans, more than anything else, it evolves what Star Trek is and what it isn't. Now, Star Trek, to me as a child, was something that was extremely thoughtful and paced at a very slower rate than I think other shows. Picard was this elder statesman, you know, we're not going to open fire and shoot someone without provocation. And then we start getting to newer Trek and some of the sensibilities of action movies and of modern storytelling along with our season long arcs and our action sequences start to take over the show. And that's also a product of Star Trek now having a bigger budget than it once had. I mean, I would say all the way through enterprise Star Trek operated on essentially scissors taping glue, right? The show was barely ahead of its time budget wise with the next generation, which is probably one of the reasons the next gen had such a, a bigger look to it than some other shows of the t era. But by the time you get to deep space nine, I mean, you do have some pretty cool visual effects and battle sequences in space, but it's not, it's competing also at that time with shows on Fox in science fiction, like the X-Files. Right. And the production value on those shows is just at a different level. Obviously, with the budget that those shows were being given, which wasn't much different than the original TNG budgets, you're not going to see that much of a leap in the shows. So Star Trek right now is, in many ways, benefiting from having budgets. Like, I can't look at any of these shows today and say, ah, oh, they had no money. Right. I mean, that's the last thing I think about anymore. Whereas before I look at it, I go, well, they didn't have any money for that, clearly. It's a weird trade-off where, you know, we we have the budgets for effects that we probably would have dreamed of watching the best of both worlds and various other episodes, but we're missing the pillar filler. Um, the, the, the stuff that was cheap. Yeah, the cheapest of all. Yeah, the storytelling, the, the little moments that Worf likes prune juice. It costs nothing. It changes nothing about the plot, but... I guarantee you there are tons of people who would know like Worf likes prune juice. It's really uh, remarkable that the show has lasted this long and there are fans that came in at different times and, you know, fans that have left, you know, unfortunately. And I think it's, I think it's everybody's own journey with Star Trek. That sometimes you're a fan of the show and sometimes you're, you know, you're not quite the fan that you were and that's fine. 
I don't expect Star Trek to be that thing for everybody every year of their entire life. I, I can't help but think that every time I go back and watch a, a Star Trek film or a, a original series episode that I haven't watched in a while, I think back to the last time I watched it and how much different my perspective on that episode or that movie is from, from the previous in, instance that I'd seen it. These movies have changed to me and my my perception of those these movies and stories have changed so many times for me over the years. Whereas the motion picture used to be this grandiose, epic, exciting film to me. And then I remember hearing people call it the motionless picture. And I was like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? It's amazing. Because as a child, I was so captivated by the imagery. Right. I didn't care that everybody was wearing gray. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't care that, you know, Kirk had a short sleeve shirt or Spock wasn't quite the Spock. I love the fact that Spock starts talking about... You know, and spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen the motion picture, but oh well, you're listening to this podcast. Uh, the moment that Spock says, and I believe this is only in the director's cut as well as the, the longer television cut, he says, uh, I weep for V'ger as I weep for a brother. And it just, it spoke to me so interestingly about Spock's character because it, it, it as an only child myself, and I was like, Spock's an only child. Wow. Or so we thought. So we thought until <laughs> he gets a sister... And a half-brother, or a stepsister, I guess, or adopted sister, I should say. Yeah. Uh, now Spock has an entire uh, cadre of, of siblings. And before, I thought he was an only child. And I, you know, I was like, oh, I understand this. <laughs> and then, of course, Wesley being an only child was something that I was really drawn to. And it was actually interesting. If you think about it, Wesley is an only child. Data until he discovers lore is an only child. But I mean, a lot of those characters had brothers and sisters. But uh, Deanna Troy, only child. Mm -hmm. Riker, I don't remember hearing about a brother or sister. Jordy was an only child, if I'm not mistaken. I believe so. You know, I mean, Worf obviously had his brother, but, you know, it depends on what part of the show you watched it. Well, if I recall correctly, Worf did not even know he had a brother. Right. Well, he had Paul Sorvino as his ha as his stepbrother growing That's up. That's right. But, uh, you know, it, it all depends on on what they've written in the show with, with Worf with their regards. All in all, you know, I'm I'm just excited that, you know, we've taken this time with this podcast to share a little bit about ourselves here and maybe hopefully you understand the audience understands a little bit more about where we're coming at the show. And, you know, we're you know, sometimes we could be very fan like and very critical of these things. But there's also a part of us that, you know, comes at it from a more of a, an analytical academic or professional working in the entertainment industry perspective, too. Yeah, I'd be curious to see how many people, you know, kind of started with Trek at an early age as we did. Um, I will tell one really quick last story about the J.J. Abrams Trek, kind of to bring sort of the where I started the the podcast from home. So the very last move, so by uh, I think Nemesis and the 2009 J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie, those were the last two movies, uh, Star Trek movies that I got to see with my dad. And those last two times I wound up taking him to the movies this time instead of him taking me. <laughs> um, the 2009 Star Trek movie, that was the last one. And uh, by this point, he's had a couple of strokes. He's in a wheelchair. So I take him into the movie theater. For lack of a better phrase, it was an experience. Uh, uh, there are some stories from that moment. Uh, and I asked him, like, what do you think of it? And, he's, and he goes... It was good, but where was William Shatner? <laughs> oh, man. So that was, and so after that movie, I actually, 
I have no idea who got it or if it ever got anywhere through the ether, but I actually sent like an email, a letter to, I think it was Bad Robot Productions. I sent a letter to maybe the Roddenberry company, Rod Roddenberry. And it was basically just saying, thank you for making that Star Trek movie. Cause I got to have that last time taking my dad to see a Star Trek movie. That's really special, man. I'd like to thank everybody for taking the time to listen to this podcast today. Uh, once I said at the beginning of the show, you know, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us from. And, you know, tune in next time for an episode. I'm sure we'll have a different story to tell besides talking about our own journey with Star Trek. And feel free to share your own journeys with Star Trek with us. There's always our Trek Story Trek handle on Twitter. Like I said, story underscore Trek. And with that, I'd like to say I'm Michael Stratigakis. I'm Marshall Hopkins. Live long and prosper. 